Now, we are dealing with a topic today that is very challenging. We've been in this sermon series called Explore God, and uh, we, what we're trying to do is tackle some of the big questions of faith. Do I have a meaning in life? Do I have a purpose in this life? Last week, we really wrestled through this question of, is there a God? And today, we approach the topic of suffering. As we begin, I want to pray for our time. So, Father, God, we recognize that as we talk about this issue of suffering and pain, that uh, literally this comes up on almost every page of the entire Bible. And the reason for that is because this is very personal, this is very real, this is not something ethereal to be discussed in offices and just debated in our heads, but this is our life. We live in a suffering place. And so God, I pray that anything I say today would draw people closer to Jesus. I pray that in the words that I'm able to communicate from your Bible, God, that you would actually draw people towards the love of Jesus in a way that they would see him as greater than they did before they came in because he meets the real needs of our pain and our suffering in a way that no one else can or promises to do. God, I pray for those who are suffering right now, God. I pray that they would be met and comforted by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a man named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton began his career as a pretty well-known evangelist. He came alongside Billy Graham, and in the early days of Billy Graham, Billy Graham, if you don't know who he is, he was probably one of the most famous evangelists of the last century. Uh, and Charles Templeton started his ministry with him, going on tour, so to speak, with uh, Billy Graham as they would fill up arenas and places like that with people sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But along the way, Charles began to get some doubts. And uh, it particularly hit him one day. He got delivered to his house in uh, a Life magazine. And on the cover of Life magazine, he says, was a picture of a woman standing in Africa with uh, the lifeless body of her child as the child had passed because there wasn't enough water. And, and Charles Templeton looked at this picture and just scratched his head in frustration and, and said, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. In an interview with Charles Templeton, he was reflecting on this, and he says this. He says, a loving God cannot possibly be the author of the horrors we have been describing in their interview. Horrors that continue every day have continued since time began and will continue as long as life exists. It is an inconceivable tale of suffering and death. And because the tale is a fact, it is, in truth, the history of the world. It is obvious that there cannot be a loving God. Charles Templeton walked away from his faith, and it's interesting, in the later years, he did another interview with a man who, when asked about Jesus Christ and the love he once had for Jesus Christ, he, he says he was brought to tears thinking of the person of Jesus Christ and still would say in that moment, I've never met a man like Jesus Christ. But suffering, suffering made him walk away from his faith. Charles Templeton's statement is a profound one. And, and the reality is, is that I, I think for Christians and non-Christians alike, everybody in this room, the question he wrestles through and the place he got to is a question that most of us have to some degree. We're all familiar with suffering. Every one of us lives in a world that has fallen and we, we have suffering that happens to us in our personal life, but then we also live in a world where all we got to do is walk outside, turn on the news, talk to our friends and our family and our neighbors and realize that suffering exists. War and violence are real. Cancer and Alzheimer's exist. Drugs and addictions take lives. 
mental illness, depression, suicidal thoughts, unmet longings and desires, abuse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, cuts and bruises and scars, tsunamis and earthquakes, school shootings, cover-ups, anxiety, unemployment. And then there's a whole category that maybe we just describe as the unspeakable. That it is just too hard to even describe the suffering we know takes place in this world in dark corners. We live in a world which begs the question, where is God in the midst of this? And that's the question Charles Templeton asked. He said, where is God in the midst of so much suffering? Why does he seemingly seem to do nothing? I confess this sermon has been one of the harder sermons I've ever written. Uh, And I'm nervous about that because I think it came together a bit sloppily and I wanted it to be tighter. And the reason it was so hard is because I've preached this sermon a handful of times. I've actually preached the same sermon in the same passage on two other occasions already. And both of those sermons, as I look back over them, you know, as a, as, a, as a preacher, sometimes I go back over old sermons that I preach, and I'm thinking of recycling them, and I look over what I said, and I go, wow, that was awful. I can't, I can't say that again. I just kind of cringe at the things I said a couple of years ago. But now I look back, and I say, I look at these other sermons I preached on suffering, and the reality is they were true. They, aren't, they weren't bad. They were good. It would have been good for us to hear But I think what was so hard this week is I know our stories. I know what's going on. I know your lives. I know what's going on in my life. I know the the counseling sessions I do with some of you where we talk through life and the pain that you're going through. And I'm looking back over my old seminary answers to the problem of evil. And I'm sitting in my office this week just saying, we need some more than that today. The simple answers aren't going to cut it. Pain is real. And the simple answers are not not true. They are true. God's word is true. And he gives us responses to the problem of evil and pain. And his word is good and it gives life. But sometimes when we're in the midst of it, a simple answer doesn't cut it and we need something more. And the reality is God provides more than simple answers. He gives us more than that. The Christian story is true, and and in the midst of our suffering, we have this hope that God doesn't just give simple answers to the problem of suffering, but he brings the fullness of himself to bear on the problem. When we enter into problem of suffering, when we engage with pain in this life, we don't look for cheap solutions, but we look for a God who says, I provide something far more complex than a simple answer. I give myself the fullness of God, and somehow... In the midst of a fallen world, for those who know that God in his fullness, it's enough. My hope today, if I can do anything, is just to point us towards the fullness of that God and to show you that somehow, somehow, God providing himself in the midst of our suffering is enough to satisfy us even in the darkest moments of our suffering. I've got kind of three points I want to make, and we're going to be in the book of Job. And so some of you aren't familiar with the book of Job. Job, if there's one book in the Bible that kind of gives the most detailed kind of snapshot of the life of a sufferer, it's the book of Job. And so turn with me, Job begins in your house Bibles on page 417. If you got in your, your app, it's right around the middle of your Old Testament. My first point is this, Christianity, Christianity different than every other worldview and religion, offers a, a different approach to the problem of suffering. Christianity offers an actual anchor to hold on to in the midst of your suffering in this life. Christianity offers you an anchor to hold on to in the midst of your suffering in this life. 
Now, if you never heard the story of Job before, let me walk through it briefly. Rather than reading big sections of the story, there's a few particular verses I want us to highlight today. So let me tell you the, the background of the story. Job. Job was a blameless, upright man who feared God and turned from evil. That's Job 1, 1. This was a man who, who lived a life that overall we would have said was honoring God. He had many blessings in a material sense that God had provided for him. He had, he had a successful career. He had a family that was loving and welcoming, and they spent time together from an outsider looking in. Anybody would say, this guy has a good life. He's done good. He's honored the Lord. And then one day, God permits Satan to begin wreaking havoc on this man's life. Job had done nothing that we're aware of to necessarily earn the consequences of sin. It wasn't some kind of karma that he had done bad and now God was bringing bad on his life. Satan just wreaks havoc on Job's life and literally unpacks hell in one day on Job's life. Job is sitting there one day and he finds out that raiders from a local territory, have come by and taken all of his sheep, all of his flocks, and, and literally killed his servants. In one moment, Job loses, in that day and age, everything he had to make money. He loses it all. He loses his entire career and sense of wealth and prosperity that he had his entire life. Now, that, that's a lot. Anyone who's gone through a season of perhaps even something light, like unemployment, that there's just a fraction of what he just experienced there, we know the hardship of what it's like to not have work. He's still sitting there kind of grieving the loss of that and grieving the loss of the life of servants who he probably knew very well. He was a godly man. When another person comes up to him and says, you're not going to believe this, but a terrible storm has come and tore your house down. Your children were inside and none of them made it. Now, if the first grief was not enough, Job is suddenly confronted by the grief that no person ever wants to go through. Job's story, even in that moment, is one of just horrific suffering. It's the kind of suffering that Charles Templeton looked at the cover of that magazine and said, it's too much. It's too much. We just don't want to go there. It's easy to read the opening few chapters of Job and, and read his story like a story, but it's actually when, you, when you, you stop and say, this was a real man who experienced this profound level of suffering, that you've got to stop and wipe the tear away from your eye and say, wow, I, I, I don't even want to imagine the pain he experienced in that day. And then it, it gets worse. He's afflicted with, with pain, and, and literally the, the text describes the pain as so excruciatingly painful that he's got boils and sores all over his body. Job himself is brought to the brink of death. It's almost impossible to comprehend. And then there's this moment that happens in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, that's very telling for the story of Job. Job's sitting there, and you can just imagine him with his head in his hands trying to wrestle through the pain of life that he's going through. And his wife approaches him. And his wife, in verse 9, chapter 2, says this. She says, Then his wife said to him, says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Now, it's interesting. In the past, I've made jokes about Job's wife. I've made the joke that you know, Job had everything, and the one thing that God didn't take away from him with his wife, but his wife is nagging him about the problems of his life and trying to convince him and tempt him to leave God. But this week, as I was wrestling through this, I suddenly was brought to the realization that everything Job lost, his wife lost too. This poor woman. The story is of Job, but, 
Job's married to an amazing woman who, who lived this life alongside him, and, and she's going through grief too. Everything Job lost, she lost. And now the one thing she has, her one safety in that day and age, because for a woman, it was her husband and then her oldest sons who would protect her against raiders like had just come. The one thing she has left, her husband, which is her safety in that life, is on the brink of death himself. She's emotionally torn, she's convicted, and her emotions are beginning to so overcome her that she's beginning to say, it would be better if we just tried to get through this on our own, anchorless, without anything to hold us down. You know, there's times in our life where the, the pain is so real that our temptation is to be like this woman, to allow the emotions of the moment to overcome us and overcome the things we know to be true. One of my daughters, when she was younger, she used to work herself into hysteria to the point that my wife would have to sit down with her and just hold her, and, and, and she'd be flailing her arms, and she'd, she'd just kind of lose it. She, she'd lose her ability to remember what was true and what was known, and she'd flail her arms, and she'd just work herself to this point, and in the middle of her breath, when she was trying to, she'd be screaming, and she'd get, take a breath in, Sarah would whisper, I love you, I love you, I'm here, I'm here, feel me, I'm here, I love you. It would go on and on, and she, she wouldn't be able to hear it because she was lost in the emotion. And then finally she'd calm down, and finally she'd regain her composure, and she'd lean in and she'd snuggle in to Sarah, and she'd begin for the first time to hear those words. Those words were there the whole time. It was true. She knew it was true. But because the emotion of the moment had so come over her, she couldn't believe it in that moment until she calmed down and remembered what had been whispered to her the entire time. Some of us were a bit like my daughter when she was younger. You, you, we, we, we experience the pain and the hardship of what's going on and the emotion gets us to this place where what we want to say and what we, what we, all we can see is the reality right in front of our eyes. All we can see is that it's hard and we begin to forget that whisper behind us that says the God that has been saying I love you through all those good moments is the same God that's saying I love you right now. I'm an anchor for you. Job's response is amazing. Before we go to Job's response, I just want to consider that even just a bit further. Job's wife is reflecting on this idea of it would be better for us to live a life without God than continue existing in a state where we're just suffering, trying to cling on to God. There's a psychologist by the name of Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's making his name pretty well known these days. He wrote a book, what's it called? It's called 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. He's a clinical psychologist, psychiatrist, and, and he has this worldview where there is no God. He, he kind of this this mixture of various religions. He, he uses the Bible a lot, but he doesn't necessarily believe in what the Bible says. But a lot of people like what he has to say. And when he talks about suffering, probably one of the better known voices today in the midst of suffering, what he says is this. He says, we're all on this earth to suffer. So learn to suffer like a man. Here's Jordan Peterson's approach. So learn to suffer like a man. Not everyone can be as rich and successful as me. Well, thanks, Jordan Peterson. But try to be less of a failure than you already are. <laughs> Makes me think of my little girl. Last week she wrote an inspirational message on a piece of paper that said, you can be, what did she say? You can be you if you try a little harder. <laughs> thanks, sweetie. 
Let's evaluate Jordan Peterson for just a moment. Here we are, Jordan Peterson, no God. There is no God. We're here on our own. And so what he has is an anchorless view of life. If we say there is no God, then we're here on our own. And then we have to deal with the reality of the pain and hardship. And so the only thing throughout history that everyone who takes that position is able to say is just be a man about it. That was Friedrich Nietzsche. And now Jordan Peterson is recycling the exact same thing, just toughen up. Well, here's the problem with that. What happens when the depression is so bad that you can't get yourself out of bed? What happens when the stress attack is so bad that you cannot take a step? What happens when you can't man up? What happens when you get old and you, and you don't have the physical strength to overcome anymore and you are dependent on someone else? See, Jordan Peterson doesn't have an answer to that. Jordan Peterson's best approach is just man up and hope that you got enough strength. And if there is no God, that's all we got. And in the midst of our darkest moments, when we can't man up, we are left utterly hopeless. That's what the world has to offer. But then God comes along, and listen to Job's response to his wife. But he says, verse 10, Job chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. Job says this, but he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He's not calling his wife a woman. He's saying, you're not seeing with clarity. You're a smart woman. You're my wife. You're just being blinded by your emotion. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin. Job looks at his wife and says, how can we call ourselves worshipers of God if we only are willing to bless him in the seasons of life where it's good? Does not God have the sovereignty over our life to give whatever is good and pleasing and purposeful for his prerogative to bring about the influences he needs to bring about in this world? How can we only worship God in the good moments of life? And he uses this word receiving. He says, have we not received from God good? How shall we not also receive from God the hard seasons of life? You see, the follower of Christ believes that everything we have in this life has been received by God. Our friends, our family, our education, our, our churches, our community, the clothes we have, the food we eat, the money we have, it's all received from God. God gives and he takes away. He has total sovereign control over us. What this means is that we cannot claim that we have earned anything. See, the Christian has this utter humility where he says, all these things I have in my life, whatever I have, that wasn't me. God, I, I have not done something special to earn the things that I have in my life that look like things are together on the outside. God has so generously gifted to me. But what that also means is that the Christian, at the same time, when we go into suffering moments and pain, we understand that we're receiving seasons. That we're not totally out of the hand of God. That he is able in his sovereignty to see the pain that we go through. That he permits to allow to come into our life. And that he is still good and he is still God in the midst of it. We believe that all that we have is from God. Even when we experience suffering, we cling to the reality that he is good in his sovereignty. Even if we can't understand it all. This provides us with an anchor that is different from the person who says there is no God. Because the Christian in this sense doesn't have to try to be strong to overcome when it becomes so powerful that they cannot move forward in their pain. 
When the grief is so much that we cannot lift up our finger to actually move the ball forward any further, what we're able to do is sit back and say, we understand that God is in control right now. What a safe place to be in. Rather than being anchorless in the wind of a universe that is pitiless and indifferent to our suffering, we are sitting in the anchor of a God who says, I know you and I'm bigger than all of this. Cling to me. That's a safe place to be. Even with our fears of suffering, even with our questions of it, as we rest in the sovereignty of God, there is peace that comes to us. Notice the first thing Job does. He, he, he looks to his wife and he actually uses the word we. He doesn't talk about me. His wife approaches him with a bit of an individualistic attitude because she's caught up in the moment. But Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we, husband and wife, receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil? See, Job recognizes that Some of the greatest suffering we experience in our life will be opportunities for us to bless other people and witness to Christ. I was just talking with someone this morning, and he he came up to me and said, I know you're preaching on suffering this morning, and he and his wife have just been through a tremendous season of hardship, and he says, you know, the opportunities we've had to talk about the greatness of God and how firm a a a stability he is for our life in the midst of our suffering is profound, and it comes out when we're in our hardest moments. Job looks to his wife, and he realizes, husbands, take note what Job does here, that in the moment of their suffering, he has an opportunity to point his wife towards Christ, to point his wife towards a God that knows them and loves them. Husbands, this is your primary responsibility, to shepherd the wife that you have married, to point them in the good seasons and the hard seasons towards their Lord who knows them, who sustains them, who is the only anchor for their heart and their soul. Parents, this is your responsibility for your children. When your children go through hard moments, when they don't understand the suffering that comes on them, to point them in all things and to not let them see the world as just blowing in the indifference of the universe, but to point them towards a God that says, I know you and I'm going I'm to be enough for you. I can provide a way for you in the midst of this. Job later on reveals his heart in Job 19. I think the centerpiece of this entire book, he says this, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Job chapter 19, verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. He's overcome not by his pain he's going through, But Job's overcome by the hope he has that God is enough for him. He recognizes that though the pain is great, his God is greater. This is different than every other worldview. The second thing we see is that Christianity offers an actual solution to the problem. Suffering is something that every worldview, every religion, finds a way to provide an answer for. Atheism has tried to find an answer to deal with the problem of religion. And everyone tries to pose a solution. The the thing I would argue is that only Christianity provides a solution that has any merit to it. The whole book of Job, you know, the most of the chapters of this book are Job's buddies trying to come alongside of him. Job goes through this tremendous suffering, and then there are 35 chapters. Job's buddies come along, and they try to be a good friend. And Job's friends basically represent all these different worldviews and religions trying to take a stab at why Job's gone through so much suffering. And, and if I could summarize what they argue, they're basically saying this. Job, you must have done something wrong. Because ultimately, God is a fair God, and, and, and you must have done something wrong to earn so much evil. Now, if 
you think about that. Is there a religion that you can think of that that's the primary idea that is talked about? Karma. That's what karma says. And actually, karma is being repackaged in our day and age. I hear it come out this way a lot. You know, if you just put good positive energy into the world, good positive energy will come back to you. Do you hear that? I hear that all the time. You know, if you put negative energy in, negative energy is going to come back to you. And oftentimes, many of us, we're just like Job's friends. We think about pain and suffering, and we think about it in a very karmaic way. That somehow things have to be totally even. And if we bring positive energy, good will come. The reality, though, is that that has not been the history of the world or any of our histories. Many of the greatest people are the greatest sufferers. We just watched the people, the story of Amanda. And uh, Amanda, what was her name? Uh, Amanda, the video we just watched a little earlier. That she was this incredible woman of God, and yet she had tremendous suffering. Karma doesn't quite answer the problem. And the thing about it is, as as they're wrestling through this potential answer of karma, God shows up. And listen to the response God has. Job chapter 38. Let me read to you from Job 30. I'm going to pick my way through Job 38. Then the Lord answers Job out out of the whirlwind, and he says this, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, speaking to the friends? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered, verse 16, into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Verse 18, declare if you know all of this. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail? I'm going to pause there. God goes on. It's interesting that in this 42-chapter book exploring the problem of suffering, the one thing God never does is give a very concise, clear answer as to why the suffering took place. Rather, at the end of this, God presents himself. God, all this book, you, you, leave, you read the book of Job and you're almost frustrated at the end of it as a reader because what you want is an answer. This is why I allowed this to happen. Look, look, Job, you can't see it all. What you want God to say is, I see everything. Look, here's the answer. You don't realize, Job, this causes this, which causes this, which causes this, which causes this, which eventually gets there. So that's why this had to happen. You couldn't see it, but I see it all. Now that makes logical sense and is true in a sense, but God doesn't give that answer to Job. God just gives himself. And somehow in the midst of that, God presenting himself in clarity to Job, presenting himself and Job looking up and seeing the face of God in clarity is enough for him. Look how Job responds. Job chapter 40, verse 3 and 4. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Verse 42, verse 5, I had heard, this is Job, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. All through scripture, whenever you see someone who has a real encounter with the living God, this is the type of response you get. Everything else gets put to the side. 
Isaiah gets caught up into the throne room of God, and for a moment, he gets a glimpse of the majesty of God, and all the suffering, all the hardship gets put to the side for a moment, and Isaiah just falls on his knees before a holy God and says, I do not belong in this place. I'm a man of unclean lips. Job gets confronted by the awesome splendor of the fullness of God, and all he can do is put his hand over his mouth and say, who am I to talk in the midst of such a majesty? There's something about suffering that draws the Christian into the presence of God. I don't know how it happens, but all through the New Testament, this is what we see over and over again. That suffering draws the Christian into this place where you see God with a clearer eye. It's almost like seasons of prosperity have this this tendency to place a fog over our eyes. And it's one of the reasons I think America is one of the hardest countries in the world to be a Christian. Because there's so much pursuit of prosperity. And there's so much belief that suffering should not take place. That we constantly got this fog over our eye. But when it's cleared away in the moment of suffering, suddenly the Christian sees God in his clarity. And somehow it's enough. In my own devotion life, something I've begun doing in the last few months is um, meditating and visualizing Christ. I'll just take a moment in silence before I pray, and I, I just spend a moment thinking of the words of Scripture that talk about Christ hanging on a cross. And I'll see him there, and I'll see the thorns on his head, and I'll visualize the nails in his hands. And I've got to tell you, something happens in my heart when I begin to visualize the reality of the God that I love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes of the faith, wrote a lot about the Christian faith, and he used to say this. He says, look, when you suffer, when you carry that burden over your shoulder and you feel like you have a cross on your shoulder that's just weighing you down and you know it's not going anywhere good down that road, it's only going to get worse. He used to say, look over and see the man Jesus Christ carrying his cross right beside you. He said, when it's on your shoulder and the weight is too much, look over and see Jesus Christ with Jesus' cross upon his shoulder. See the blood-stained back of his clothing going down him and look over and see him in the midst of it beside you. And then hear the sweet words of Jesus, he would say in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly heart and you will find rest for your souls. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when it seems so overwhelming, look over just this way and see Jesus and that will be enough for you. It doesn't provide the answer of why God allowed this in this moment. It's too pat an answer to give you something that simple. Rather, he gives you Jesus. He gives you a God who does not stand at a distance and just say, I see your suffering and I'm indifferent to it. That's what every other religion offers. Every other religion offers a God who stands at a distance and says, I'm sorry that the world is that way. I hope it gets better for you. Rather, Christianity looks down and God says, I see you in your brokenness and I come out of the place where there is no suffering and I enter into your brokenness with you. Anything you experience, I have experienced even more so. Because when Christ hung on the cross, it was not only the physical pain that he endured in that moment, but he was taking on the pain of sin The rebellion, see the Christian narrative is so complete and complex, it gives a reason for the pain and the suffering. What that means is when you go through hardship in life, we're not wondering how hardship got here. 
We know it all comes from rebellion to God. It comes from selfish desires that want to live our way, and we bring into this world chaos with us. It's why society falls apart, because we're a part of it. That's the problem right here. But when Jesus hangs on a cross, what he does is he takes all that brokenness on his shoulders. And so the man Jesus on a cross doesn't just suffer physically the way many have suffered, tremendous physical pain, but he takes the weight of the world on his shoulders. He says, I know how hard it is. Now load it all on me. I'm able to take it. I I can take this and you can't. He enters into our pain on our behalf. John Stott, I'm going to read a longer quote that John Stott wrote regarding Christ coming into the flesh. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. A remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our suffering becomes more manageable in the light of this. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. It is his only justification in such a world as ours. Charles Templeton asked the question, where is God in the midst of so much pain? And the cross is the answer. It's God's answer saying, I am here. I have not left you alone, but I entered it and I bore it in full so that when you go through it, you know I've carried it in full already and I will provide a way out for you and I will provide hope in the midst of it for you. Jesus is not removed from it all, but he's entered into it. And because of that, Hebrews, the writer of the New Testament, says this, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. The Christian faith offers something different. It doesn't promise removal from suffering. In fact, all through the New Testament it says, prepare for suffering. For the Christian, there's even a special dose of suffering to come, so be prepared for it. And yet he says, I've been in it with you, and I will navigate it with you. The story doesn't end there, though. Christianity goes even further. And it it doesn't just provide an anchor, it doesn't just provide a solution, but it provides a hope in the midst of it. Job ends in this incredible way in chapter 42. It's hard to understand what's happening in the end of the book of Job. But but Job somehow has everything restored to him. Let me read to you what it says. Job chapter 42, verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord God gave Job twice as much as he had had before. 
Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And Job died an old man full of days. It's, it, it's an interesting final chapter to read because as a reader you almost say, yeah, but the scars are there. It, it's Sure, it's double as good in the end, but it's double as bitter, remembering how it was. But the point of Job chapter 42 is to point the Christian towards something greater. The point of Job chapter 42 is to point the Christian towards the reality that our hope is not in the current moment, which is full of suffering, but our hope is in a future reality that is very clear and is very good, where there will be more than enough to go around. You see, all through the Christian story, there is this hope that lingers over the Christian narrative that says there is a heaven that awaits. And that promise of heaven has been the guidepost for all of Christian history. It's only in recent history that we've taken our eyes off of that and tried to make more sense of the world without heaven awaiting us. But we can't do it and the Christian narrative cannot be detached from it. I believe Job chapter 42 is supposed to give the Christian this amazing hope in the midst of our suffering that there is coming a chapter 42 in all of our lives where what was lost will be restored, where what was covered in death and pain will be covered in the sweetness of the presence of heaven. See, heaven is real. Heaven is that place where there is no pain and death and it awaits each of those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. See, heaven is that place where death reigns no more. Heaven is that place where we are not just ethereally floating in the clouds as some would like us to believe, but it's a physical place that meets the realities of the inner longings of our heart. The thing inside of you that says, I want community, but not just false community where there's hardship. I want real community where I'm known and fully loved. I want friends and community, and I want to be around people who worship God in the fullness of it all. That's what heaven's going to be. And it's not somewhere else, but God's going to renew all things it's going to be here in this place, on this earth, as God renews this earth and he wipes away all that was broken and he brings about his final plan to restore all things. And in that moment, the greatest part of heaven will not be that all things have been restored. It will not be that there is no more death and there is no more pain. It will be that Jesus is in the midst of it. That's the greatest glory of heaven is that God will present himself and our faith will no longer be just made faith, but it will be made sight as we behold the splendor of God. And in that moment, what will happen when we see the fullness of God and all will be made right in our eyes, we will look back on this life and we will say, I didn't understand it then, but I get it now. Somehow in the midst of being presented by the glory of Jesus in all his majesty, I can comprehend what God was doing. I didn't have that vantage point then, but somehow when I get there and I look backwards, I will be able to say with confidence, my God, it was a perfect plan. It was perfect in its fullness. I wouldn't have it any other way. A few years ago, I was at a funeral. My brother-in-law, his father passed away after a 10-year battle with cancer. And it was a profound moment for me. I love my brother-in-law dearly. He's an amazing man of faith. He's a pastor in Ohio. And he got up and he did the eulogy for his father. It was a full church service. The man had been the chief of police in their small town and everybody was there. It was a very sad day. And Andrew, and I, we had walked with Andrew through the last year as his dad had suffered through the pains of cancer. And I, I remember those days and I remember him going through that. 
And Andrew got up, and in the middle of his eulogy, he said this. He said, you know, cancer sucks. And he broke down crying as soon as he said it. He said, cancer sucks. But cancer didn't win. Cancer doesn't win. The Christian story does not end with the suffering of this life. There is a hope that is so much bigger. We have to cling to that. Otherwise, we are anchorless. Otherwise, we're just in the pitiless gaze of an indifferent world, waiting for something, hoping that we can man up. But the reality is, is that cancer sucks, but in the Christian narrative, it does not win. Park, there is a refuge in your storm. I don't know what you're going through today, but I know you're going through something. Because this is the reality we live in. And I want to beg of you today, there is a hope in the midst of your suffering that is transcendent to any pat answer I could give you today. It's Jesus Christ in all his fullness. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to draw near to him. And in your suffering, find that he is bigger than any short, small answer would ever provide. He is able to comfort you in your greatest time of need. Let me pray. Father, we have to bow our heads before you as we wrestle through this. God, I have feared giving this sermon all week because I know any words I give are incomplete and not enough to answer the questions we all have. But somehow Jesus is enough. And so point our eyes towards you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.